This episode is brought to you by Feel Free from BotanicTonics.com. Feel Free is a small two-ounce shot made from kava and other ancient plants, and the feeling that it provides is incredible. It is euphoric. It gives you this sense of focus. It reduces anxiety, and it just puts you in a relaxed state in your body. Think of it as a plant-based magical elixir that can uplift your mood, increase your productivity, and give you the energy to do the things you want to do today. There are so many applications for when you can use Feel Free. A few examples are using Feel Free to get into a flow state before yoga, meditation, or exercise. People are using this as a kind of energy drink to go running for miles at a time. And it's also great for socializing. It just makes it easier to connect to people around you. There isn't this kind of background hum of anxiety anymore. It just really melts away. And that also makes it a great replacement for alcohol. So if you're ready to feel free, go to botanictonics.com and use promo code ZIAN40 for 40% off. Again, that's botanictonics.com, promo code ZIAN40, X-I-A-N 40, at botanictonics.com. This episode is also brought to you by Sheath, the underwear of legends. What makes Sheath different is the pouch on the inside. Now this is a game-changing invention that completely revolutionizes the male undergarment. These are the most comfortable underwear I have ever worn by far. They've got amazing designs and styles, super comfortable fabrics. My favorite is the bamboo and also the V, which is a long leg athletic underwear that doesn't ride up and it supports you where it matters most. So go check out Sheath at sheathunderwear.com and use promo code TIMEWHEEL to save 20%. Once again, that's sheathunderwear.com, promo code TIMEWHEEL.
All right, we are rolling, and I'm here with my friend Dhruv, or Dhruv. How's it going today, brother? Good, good. Great to see you. Good to reconnect with you. Uh, very excited to speak and share ideas and learn and grow with each other. So thanks for having me on here, man. Absolutely. Yeah. Just to speak a little about how we met, um, it was at a Kundalini yoga retreat, um, probably nearly a decade now. Um, it's getting there, you know, maybe it was seven years or so, but, uh, yeah, we met there, uh, at a retreat, um, in Texas and that was just, you know, absolutely powerful time. Um, and we've kind of stayed connected uh, just through the internet a bit. And recently um, we reconnected because I had done that uh, podcast with Leah about Kundalini Yoga. And uh, it was cool to kind of share conversation with you around um, that tradition, but as well just about uh, Sikhi or Sikhism um, because it's something that is, you know, growing I'm growing more and more interested in, in Sikhism and particularly the teacher um, that it's uh, founded by, which is Guru Nanak. Um, and I, I know that you're very well versed on Guru Nanak and Sikhi and you kind of have taken your, um, I think it's called Amrit, right? Yes, um, that's correct. And, and yeah, so you've become a Sikh yourself um, here in America which is an interesting part of the, this conversation that I, I'd love to, to get into. But briefly, I just wanted to kind of say what Sikhism is um, and what the kind of core tenet of Sikhism uh, is and what they believe. Um, so there's this um, kind of sacred text known as the Japji. And uh, that this is actually how you really got turned on to Sikhism. But uh, some of the initial words in the Japji, which is also known as the Mool Mantra in Kundalini Yoga, is Ekonkar, Satnam, Karta, Purak, Nirbo, Nirver, Akal, Murit, Ajuni, Sebang, Gur Prasad. And what that means is, and there's many translations of this, but roughly what it translates to in a very simple English form is there is only one God. His name is true. He is the creator. He has no fear. He has no hate. He is omnipresent, unborn, and self-illuminating. And by the good and by the Guru's grace, he is realized. So that is like the core tenet of what Sikhism believes. Um, it's pretty, I would say, spiritually oriented, less religious and more spiritual, which is one reason I, I really do resonate with it. Um, but in your own words, how did you discover Guru Nanak, um, who wrote those words? Um, he, and he's a poet, essentially, and a singer, which is another reason I resonate a lot with rock, him. Because rock star, I, right? <laughs> yeah, 100%. And he would travel the world with a more or less a guitarist. Right, um, Madonna, G.Y. Yeah, exactly. And, and, and seeing these hymns of which that is one. Um, but anyway, for yourself, how did you discover Sikhism and, and Guru? Yeah. So, so, so one thing I want to do before we get deep into it is I want to acknowledge that I'm speaking from my experience as well as the self-education um, through my own studies as well as, as speaking with many other people. And there's a common thing we do in Sikhi before we start any dialogue is that we acknowledge that we are imperfect. Um, I'm going to say things today that are from the heart, perhaps off the cuff. 
and taken out of context could be misinterpreted as as disingenuous or untruth. So to any of the Sangit who is watching, if I have made any mistakes in speaking today, it is part of my own uh, limited knowledge. And I, I ask for almost pre-forgiveness and that I'm yeah. only speaking the what I know and my experiences that are to be true. So with that being said, um, yeah, how did I come into Siki? There's a, it's interesting. There's a linear answer that I could be like, oh, it was a Tuesday in, in July of 2011, right? And this thing happened. Um, and that's true. That's definitely what happened is I heard Japji by a set of circumstances and, and something occurred. But there's also a bigger and more philosophical truth that as I look back and reflect, I can recognize that in the past as well as the future, we're always holding a space for like the right here and right now. That Japji and Hasiki were an inevitability that I just hadn't met yet at a person at a at the, the time that it occurred. So in yeah. other words, there were events that were continually occurring from my youth that led me to that exact moment at the exact time that it was needed. That can be interpreted as just a uh, in fa- a deep fascination with um, Eastern philosophy, right, or Oriental philosophy. Um, I was definitely attracted to Buddhism as a kid. Um, I just was always really fascinated with any of the Eastern traditions, specifically Buddhism. Um, and I think around in 2008, I started. At, at this point in my life, I had I had more or less become agnostic. I grew up with a traditional Christian family. And around 14, 15, I didn't really know what I believed in. And for a few years, uh, it was rather agnostic. But around 19, I, you could say I started searching and looking. I knew there was something missing in my life that felt like it was a spiritual component. And that definitely set me off on a path. Uh, yeah. I, like I said, I, I got really involved in, in American Buddhism is probably the best way to say it. It wasn't traditional um, religious Buddhism. It was spiritual Buddhism as interpreted by Americans. Um, and around 2008, I started a meditation practice. Um, and if you would have asked me at that time in my life, I would have told you I was a Buddhist. Um, mm-hmm. and as I meditated and meditated, it was a pretty, it was a pretty shoddy practice in regards to its consistency. Um, and that was troublesome for someone who was interested in developing a genuine practice. And so about a year and a half, into my practice of meditation, I kept coming across texts that would more that more or less suggested that if you wanted to really prime the space, you might want to try breathwork practices and or yoga practices. That'll kind of settle everything down for you to actually go into meditation. So yeah. I started taking yoga classes online. Um, the old YouTube was my first <laughs> my first place. Yeah. I had this terrible fear that I was going to go into a yoga class and everyone was going to be like, this guy doesn't know what he's doing. Um, yeah. So I started with YouTube, just some general Hatha classes. Um, mm-hmm. And I had already, I, so you could say I kind of did it reverse. I didn't go to yoga and learn all of it. I had learned maybe the philosophy first and then someone suggested that yoga would help me out. So I had already heard about chakras. I'd already been studying chakras. I'd already been studying the kundalini energy. Um, And so when I kind of got serious, like, hey, this is definitely what I want to check out. I want to take it to the next level. I I literally just typed in the word kundalini yoga, not knowing that that was an actual thing. And it was like, hey, this you actually work 
about 50 feet away from a Kundalini yoga studio. I was working at Central wow. Market at the time, uh, at the Westgate mm. and Ben White area, and Yoga Yoga was literally oh, right. attached. It was in the same complex yeah. as the place I worked at. So it was like, oh, yep. how weird. I walked by this place where this thing's going on for the last four years, like every day. So... <laughs> I, um, there was also, there was also some pretty interesting things leading up to this. I actually, I had a dream that was rather prophetic in regards to, um, I remember being very prayerful one night this is right before I signed up for classes and I was like, Hey universe, I'm ready. Or I think I'm ready. Like, give me a sign. What do I need to do? And I had this dream, um, where I was kind of like in a desert Adobe place and there was, um, the Adobe building style. Right. And I walked into like an atrium. So it was, or like a courtyard that was inside of a, an Adobe settlement. And there were roses everywhere. I just remember like roses, like vines of roses hanging from everything. And right in the middle of this courtyard was a kind of like a, uh, a therapy bench. Like, you know, like the idea of what a therapist has their patients sit on that yeah. long chair that right. like kind of popped up. There was a guy just sitting there, yep. just chilling, and he's eating ice cream. He's licking ice cream, and I'm like, and I walk up to him, and he goes, "Let's go!" And like that was the dream. That and and you know, this guy yeah. has a big beard, white hair, um, and I didn't have any reference to context. I'll come back to this in in our as our conversation evolves. But that literally, I woke up that next day, and I was like, "Let's do it! Let's go!" Um, yeah. So I signed up for a beginner series. Uh, I found the Kundalini Yoga practice and a beginner series offered by Yoga Yoga. Yep. And I went there and it was a two class a week experience. And just immediately I was like, wow, I feel something that I have never felt before by coming to yoga. And it was probably the third class that they started introducing mantra, uh, specifically Satnam, mm -hmm. which was like, oh, this is really weird. We're chanting, we're chanting sounds that are kind of odd. Um, sure. And at the end of that class, we worked with this mantra the what's called the Laya Yoga Meditation, and it's Ekonkara Satanama Siriwa Hey Guru, and we did that for maybe about eleven minutes, and it it did something to me that in you know my three and a half four years of meditation I'd never felt before. I felt something that was very uh, unique, and obviously it perked my curiosity. I was like, what was that? And like. I remember the teacher explained Ekonkar Satnam Siri Wahiguru as, as, and this is how I frame it too. I'll, I'll speak more about this in a second. The Ekonkar is one creative energy. But this is our true, this is our true identity as well as the true reality. And when we experience that, it's like, wow, amazing. And that's actually what I already believed. I had already gotten into like quantum dynamics, string theory, mm -hmm. everything is one. Um, so at this point, I was just like, S sacred science is kind of what I'd call it. Like where I held a deep reverence for the quantum field, yeah. things of this nature. Right. And I was essentially hearing this mystical mantra that was saying the exact same thing. One creative energy, creating everything. Yep. It's who you are. It's what this all is. Wow. Amazing. And so I went up to that mm -hmm. teacher and I was like, what was that? Where, 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 where does that come from? What is this? Cause this is what I already know to be true. What is this? And she said, oh, it's called Japji, and it's from the Sikhs. And I was like, what is Japji, and what are Sikhs? I have no idea. As ignorant as that sounds, in 2011, I didn't even know what Sikh he was, right? I had yeah. no idea. I'd never I met didn't a, either. a Sikh in real life. Right. Yeah. So I, it, sounds, it sounds entirely ignorant, um, but at the same time, that's the truth, right? I didn't even know. Mm -hmm. 
And so she said, it's, it's called Jupji and it's from the, it's from the six. And I was like, all right, well, I'll take that information and run with it. Um, she was mm-hmm. incorrect, right? Ekonkar Satnam Siri Waheguru isn't from necessarily from Jabji. The Laya Yoga Mantra is not from Jabji. Uh, so God bless her heart <laughs> for giving me the, the correct <laughs> wrong information uh, because it's all divine, right? <laughs> Everything is, it's all like the guru coming in to help me out. So I get home. Sure. Yeah. Um, I, you, could, you could argue that I'm still kind of buzzing from yoga and I type in on the, on the old Google machine, Jabji Sab and... I get an English, mm-hmm. pops up as an English and Gurmukhi translation. Uh, specifically, it's by Mata Mandir Singh. Um, he's, mm-hmm. the, he's the recording artist that I had downloaded. So I downloaded both the English and the Gurmukhi version or the Punjabi version. And I hit the play button. You know, I'm just chilling out in my room. It was probably like 9 p.m. at night all by myself. I hit the play button, not really expecting anything other than just like a song to play. And he starts off and he says, we are one with God. This is our true identity. And probably by the the second he said identity, there was an almost a, a instantaneous rupturing of my heart is how I would describe it. Mm-hmm. A event occurred within me that I had never experienced before of almost like a complete revolution on a cellular level, mental level, emotional level, spiritual level, where it was like a blossoming of a flower in a, in a, in a snap of a finger. It, it was, mm. I had tears coming out of my eyes. I was, I was just upheaving and upheaving and the upheaval, the emotional upheaval was releasing and it was, it felt good. It didn't feel bad to cry and it felt joyful and blissful. Like something, amazing was happening in that moment. And as I sat there in, in both this huge upheaval, but also like mental awareness or meditative awareness, I could hear a voice, a voice speaking very clearly and directly to me, which I would now say is the voice of my soul. Um, I could hear the voice of my soul literally, clearly, directly say, this is your path. This is what you have been searching for. You know, for about six years, seven years, I had been a seeker. I had been looking. I had been trying to find. Mm -hmm. And without a doubt, absolute clarity, with gentle, loving directness, this voice was like, this is it. This is it. Um, Mm -hmm. And, man, I Mm -hmm. that was powerful. That was a very powerful time for me. Um, Right. So there was this pre- so I should, I should also, I want to also preface that in my youth, yep. I was always taught that God would, would give you some form of conviction, that it was unwise mm-hmm. to simply believe something because you wanted to, or because someone told you to, and that more or less a sincere seeker will eventually receive conviction for what they are to believe. I never found that when I studied Buddhism. I never found that when I studied the Christian texts. I never found that whenever I bounced around to whatever lineage I found myself in. But here I was within seconds of discovering Sikhi to have this divine conviction that I had been told would ex- would be my experience at, at the time when it was right or when it was the correct path for me. And so I had that experience and I'd never had it before. Um, and that meant something really really deeply to me. It really, I, I heard that voice. Yeah. I heard that message. It, there was absolutely nothing about it that was 
corrupted or impure. It was just like obvious, right? So there was this kind of trust that this was actually correct for me. Um, right. I remember shortly after that experience, maybe a few days later, I went down to Barton Creek, so isolated in nature. And I was like, I'm just going to sit here and listen to the whole Japji because this recording takes about an hour. And I did some yoga up there on a cliffside. It was sunrise, not even realizing it. I had went really early in the morning, which is a very uh, important part of the sick practice. And I was sitting up there. I listened to it in full and it just like bestowed so much information to me. And I remember this interfacing that was happening. It was like this voice was downloading a thought in my mind. And then the very next puri or verse would say the exact thing that the download I just received was there was this really interesting thing happening. Um, and so I got the taste of conviction before I knew anything about Siki, which is an odd experience. Um, so it was like, I was ready to jump in before I even knew anything about Siki. So there was kind of like no convincing needed. My heart had already told me I was in the right place. Um, and from there it was just a matter of integration deepening my understanding. Um, and all those things were done through such an intense love that it was never labor, laborsome to do it. It was always love. Um, you know, I had told yeah. you in that recording at the time in Austin, I was a cyclist commuter. That's how I got around. And I would just have this in my headphones everywhere mm -hmm. I go. I would be jamming Japji riding down the yep. street. Whether I was like bicycling, longboarding, didn't matter what I was doing. I was listening to this Japji. And as I learned it more yeah. and more, I would be singing it. I'd be just like singing super loud, riding down the streets of Austin. You know, um, yeah. I'm sure I looked like a madman at the time. Um, but it was, it was just love, dude. It was so much love. Um, and it had this huge, huge yeah. impact on me with Jabji. And then from there, it just like, kind of progressively grew. So that's kind of the yeah. in short story. Absolutely. 2011, Jabji changed, changed everything for me. Yeah. Dude, one thousand percent. I really resonate with that story. Um, yeah, for me as well. Um, when I was initially exposed to it, was in Kundalini Yoga, um, which I was in more to understand the altered states of consciousness that I had had through my mushroom experiences. I was there to kind of understand you know, what was that, what are altered states, you know, how can I harness that wild perception that I had, uh, on some mushrooms. Um, so when I was introduced to the mantras, I was definitely like, Hmm, I didn't know I was going to be getting into mantras and Kirtan by coming to this class. I thought it was strictly about Kundalini energy. Um, but I had a very similar experience where I was just reaching these deep states of peace through the mantras. Um, and at first I had no idea where they really originated either. I didn't know that they were Sikh mantras we were chanting. Um, and in fact, the way I kind of, you know, there's a lot of like, um, myth that goes on in the Kundalini lineage. I, I almost thought wherever these came from, came from some like avatar or some like Shiva or like a God, uh, or something like kind of gave us these mantras and I was singing some type of like godly words that came directly from some higher elevated being. Um, mm -hmm. And in a sense, you know, Nanak is, but, but what I'll say is when I learned that he was just kind of a teacher and a spiritual 
guy and a, and a poet and a singer and a world traveler, I was like, whoa, I really resonate with that. And I, I'm way more interested now in learning about, um, these mantras, what their interpretations are and the story of the guy who created them because Mm -hmm. it isn't so far-fetched, you know, it was, he lived 400 years ago, maybe 500 years ago. Now it's, these aren't like super old. These aren't, 8,000-year-old mantras, which is what I was kind of thinking they were, um, they're relatively new. And, um, you know, then I learned about kind of how uh, Kundalini Yoga kind of did this infusion of Sikhism because the founder of Kundalini Yoga was a Sikh himself and um, I believe, you know, really loved the teachings of Guru Nanak. So he, and, and they are great, powerful teachings. So in a sense, I'm kind of glad that that happened. Um, and I was introduced to them through that. Um, and as well, it was like I was being, when I was reading their English interpretations of these mantras, it was like, that's what I saw on the psychedelics. I saw oneness. I saw that we're that we've always been here and there's just like we're never gonna go away i I don't know i the type of like a call idea uh, which is like this undying essence i i felt like i connected to that in my psychedelic states the this immortal spirit that i had um and really resonated with this because it didn't feel dogmatic it felt just like spiritually charged charged with altered state of consciousness and you know like the guy that wrote this must have had direct experience of the divine it's not just like i don't know so it was it was very profound i'll just i'll just leave it at that but for you how did you learn about the founder of sikhism and these mantras uh guru nanak and maybe share you know what you resonated with about him and and, and maybe who he is in a bit, if, you, if you're very well versed on it, so that uh, yeah, the people yeah. listening might get to learn about him. Yeah, so um, I've always been a personal researcher. I've got no issue. I, you know, I'm not waiting for someone to give me permission to find out. I am happy to, to look into things and research on my own. And due to the intensity of that experience that I just shared about, um, I was quick to start looking up. What is this stuff? Who does it come from? Where does it come from? Um, so, I mean, I bought, you know, I'd bought small books about Guru Nanak. I did as much intensive research that the internet would allow at the time about Guru Nanak. Um, and I too developed kind of like a fanboy fascination with the Guru, you know what I mean? And I'm just like, Oh, he's so yeah, cool. Yeah. He's like literally like super cool. <laughs> Aside from like the holiness mm-hmm. of Guru Nanak, he's, he's like a genuinely cool person. Um, and at the time of my life, right. I too was dabbling in recreational use of substances, psychedelics, cannabis, um, and so there was there was a playful, r- uh, rambunctious love. Um, I was I'm certainly not a pious person, um, and so that it was like this. I, I don't know I, the energy he kind of held was I, you know I jokingly say rock star with no disrespect, my friends. Um, to, because you know, like you said, he's on tour. <laughs> he's like, he's literally going yeah. around the world singing songs, and and people are just like, "Wow, right. you're amazing!" Um, yep. So there was just this like intense fascination uh, with with Guru Nanak as as a as a person and as a being. Um, yeah. 
And the proof is kind of in the pudding, as the old statement goes, in the sense of regardless of what I thought, I continued to have direct experiences every time I used those mantras and every time I sung Japji. I continue and continue to this day to have these responses. Um, and there's a certain amount of, for the curious-minded, that will not just use it and put it away, but you'll ask why. Why is that doing this thing to me? And why is it making me feel this specific way? Um, and if you follow those logical questions, it'll take you to a logical answer of opening you up to, to what your relationship might actually be to Siki and why you're doing what you're doing. Um, you know, in the West, there's so many of us who have religious trauma. We grew up in like maybe a super dogmatic household. We dealt with feelings like guilt and shame. Yeah. And I know I, when I met, when right. I, when my path met with all this stuff, the last thing I wanted to do was be involved in a religion. Um, but, mm -hmm. but through the course of a decade, you know, you do ask yourself like, man, when I say, Wahe Guru, I heal. When I get up in the morning at Amra Vela and read Japji and do these things, I heal. I feel myself healing. There, it brings a deep sense of peace. Mm -hmm. It opens my heart to love. I feel like this essence of grace coming through my through my life. Um, there, it was funny. There's this video. There's a really amazing person named Jagaraj Singh Khalsa, or maybe not Khalsa, Jagaraj Singh. He uh, started Basics of Sikhi. And before he, he passed away in the late 2000 teens, um, but before he passed away, he made it to a 3HO summer solstice event. And he and people were asking him questions about the relationship of Sikhi and Kundalini Yoga, and everyone in there was like, "I'm not a Sikh, but I do all these things." And he's like, "So let me tell you, let me." He's like, "Let me ask you something. You wake up at four a.m. and everyone's like, yeah. And they're like, and you read Japji, and they're like, yeah. And he's like, and you chant Wahe Guru for twenty two minutes, and like, yeah. And like he's like, my friend, you're more of a Sikh than most Sikhs, <laughs> like, like in regards to in regards to like the practices." Um, you know sure. what I mean? Like for whatever reason, people are so resistant yeah. to taking on the space, but they're indulging in the practices mm -hmm. that are defined as our, as our practices seeks. Um, so it was, yep. and those are the practices that Anonik himself would do. Right, right. 100%. Um, you know, there's so many stories about how he would get up in the morning for his bath and he would get so caught up in yep. meditation that he would forget to go back to work and his and his father would be like, What are you doing, Nanak? You're supposed to be working with the cows. And he's just like, Oh no, you know, I'm just gonna meditate. Or there's so many stories, really fun stories about the boy Nanak that are really mischievous, very heartwarming. He was always kind of a mischief maker, um, which is another yeah. thing I relate to. Uh, there's a certain Same amount of rebellious that. spirit in Guru Nanak, the person, uh, as he as he shrugged off all the traditions both of his heritage as well as the incoming traditions that were coming, he was very rebellious in spirit. You know, one of his most famous statements is there's no Hindu, there's no Muslim at a time when there was mm -hmm. nothing but Hindus and Muslims and there was fighting amongst the two and who's right. And we're going to kill you if you don't this and that, you know what I mean? And he, he would be like, Nope, not any of right. it, uh, which is very, yeah. which is a very uh, courageous thing to do, but also again, evident of a rebellious nature, and, a, and what seems to be a fun and sweet, playful nature as well. Um, so I just always really yeah. resonated with him as, as, as a person. And um, the, way I the way I encountered Siki, so I, guess we, so I guess we should first actually delineate a, a conversation real quick. 
So people yeah. might not be aware of this, but Sikhi, much like Christianity, has different sects within it. And each mm. sect is going to have a, a core belief uh, that are pretty much shared amongst each sect. And then there are variations of those sects that may... So some, some people say that, that Guru Nanak is a literal incarnation of God. And so when you were saying that like, oh, it felt like it was coming from an avatar, there's definitely sects of Sikhi that believe that. Yeah. And they're like, Guru Nanak is God mm. and will never be as good as the Guru. The Guru is, the Guru is like some sort of unfathomable special being. And here we are just as humble, lowly Sikhs, right? Respect. Why Guru? That's great. Yeah. Um, the <laughs> There are sects of Sikhi that, rev- that, that, Maybe don't make that delineation about Guru Nanak, but they certainly hold God as a personified being, typically associated as man, who almost holds like an Abrahamic role over reality. Mm -hmm. Very much still the same. Like if you're good, you get rewarded. If you're bad, you get punishment, things like that. The way I, the way that the Guru brought Sikhi into my life and my understanding is that there's like a, an essence that is both within us and beyond us. It was inside of Nanak, Mm -hmm. just like it's inside you and it's inside of me. And that as Nanak attained these high states, so it's God, God is in us. And so Guru Nanak Mm -hmm. is both an incarnation of God in the same way that you and I are. And he was able to, in, in a way, foster or open that space. And once achieved... You could say that he wasn't speaking from ego, but he was speaking from the God divine within himself. So there's like a, a realm for both the human Nanak and the divine Guru manifesting mm-hmm. himself through the avatar of Nanak. Um, and that's in you. Yeah. So that and so I believe, and, and some people might think it's heretical of me to say it. That's in me. That's in you. And the Guru Granth Sahib, which is our holy text, says that it says God is closer to you than your hands and your feet. That's where God's at. Mm-hmm. It's not far out, super some complex, faraway place. It's just, it's inside of you. And I think that's what right. Nanak was trying to tell us. Nanak wasn't saying, worship me. At least in my opinion, he wasn't telling us to worship him. He was letting us know that there's a divine yeah. reality within us and all around us. And this is the way that you can connect to that. And I think that's also what I was looking for in my mm-hmm. life. I wasn't looking to worship something mm-hmm. far away. You know, my my own personal youth tradition was that God is far away on a cloud somewhere. He's a man. And if you're a good boy, right. <laughs> you'll get good stuff. If you're a bad boy. <laughs> right. It's like Santa Claus, more or less. That, that complex for me created a trauma as a youth. Right, right. right. Um, and so this is percent. more like, hey, it's all energy. Everything's energy. Yep. Yep. Thousand percent. Yep. And that was again why I resonated so much with them. I love that. I love that. Yeah. So like you know, I'm sure there are many different levels of interpretation um as to what they believe they're reading or chanting. Um, as you said, different sects within um uh Sikhism, but for me what it's saying in particular, like the Mool mantra or the, the first couple lines of Japji, where it says he is omnipresent, unborn and self-illuminating. Um, that to me is translates to more or less like God is the fabric of reality. 
and everything is God. I am, this table is, the plants are, the birds are, the sky is, the stars are, the universe is God. What is it made of? It is made of the essence of the creator. It is, so it is the create, the creation is God. And this is all creation. And it's hard to even fathom because that implies a creator and some type of persona, maybe like God is this being um, like Krishna, for example. And, and I relate to Krishna and I relate to a lot of these ancient Indian gods as well. I love Shiva. You know, I'm a big fan of Shiva, the Adi Yogi. And so, I, you know, I, I, I like these archetypes. I believe in these archetypes, but he's talking more about the universe and it, it is all the fabric of the universe is one. And that's what Ekankar means. Like the creator and the creation are one. Um, so many people have different views with every different religion. Kind of, it seems like they're saying that there's only one God and they're the right one and all other gods are false gods. Um, that's dogma in a sense. Um, but what he's saying is like, even behind those gods, there is still only one divine essence, one divine creation. Um, and that is Ekonkar. So, um, and to me, right. again, and it's charged with like, like personal mystical experience. He, in his meditation and in his practice and in his trance states induced by the mantra and the singing. And I know a bunch of musicians who sing and go on stage know that you get into some type of trance when you're really like, bringing your heart into the words and the lyrics. Um, he was reaching these deep states of consciousness. Um, and in, in fact, he even sat with holy men or siddhas, um, essentially uh, sadhus, and he would kind of drill their minds and be like, what is it that you believe? And he would pose his own kind of questions. Well, if you believe that, then what about this? And they would always be like, this guy's really smart and this guy's really insightful. Right. And then he's making me wonder more about my stuff, you know? And um, I just love that he was so inquisitive and he was so, I will ask the questions, the hard questions that honestly, some people probably get killed for asking. And that's right. why he's kind of held on such a, a high regard as a spiritual teacher. But what does this all bring right. up for you? Um, so, I agree with you about that first statement you made about Ekonkar being more of a cosmic fabric than a personified mm -hmm. entity. Um, that seems to be what it's hinting at for me as well, or that is what I have taken away from it as well. It's more of an energy. And there are certainly, um, certainly groups of people and six who joke around about it being like the force. Like there's this kind of a joke that Siki and, mm -hmm. and the Jedi or Star Wars are kind of synonymous with each other in regards to like that be, being in harmony with the cosmic force. So it's both mm -hmm. uh, the fabric and essence of our reality. And if you wanted to put it into like, categorization i believe it's what's called panentheism so pantheism is when we see god within the creation panentheism is both in the creation and outside of the creation so there is this idea that god is present in all the things like you have just said which is confirmed by science and and quantum theory that there's a, there's one 
element, right, atom or molecule that is making up everything, and it just takes different shapes and forms. So there's a certain kind of like divine truth of scientific evidence that that's not just a fanciful poetic statement, but of actual reality. Um, but it also yeah. says that, as you had said, it kind of also infers a creator, um, which we do have reverence for. However, in Siki, it is considered to be formless. It is a formless, mm-hmm. uh, disengendered. There's no, there's no, it's called, um, this nirgun. It's considered to be nirgun. So without shape and form, well, it's nirgun and sirgun. Sirgun is the creation that we relate to and, and we can work with, but the nirgun is the formless nature of it, the unmanifested nature of it. Um, and that is very hard to wrap your mind around. It's very hard to, to be like, what is nothingness? <laughs> like, how do I meditate on that? Um, yeah. So that is also why we have the guru. So the guru, as we as we have evidence within the word guru prasad, the guru is, is some sort of mechanism of interface that can open our space to experiencing that unmanifested divine reality. And whether you want to interpret mm-hmm. that as like the physical 10 Sikh gurus and the living guru, guru Granth Sahib, or if you want to interpret, I also believe that the guru is inside of me, that there is a wisdom teacher within me that's teaching my mind, ego, knowledge and wisdom, right? So that's not, so when I say that God or the guru is inside of me, I'm not talking about Drew Singh Khalsa, the personality and mental conception. There is a divine essence within us that is teaching us. It's that voice that was like, this is your path. It's not a head thing. It's like a right. heart or soul thing. So the guru is this interface yeah. that allows us to open up to that experience, not just, not just hear it or talk about it or, or philosophize about it, but actually experience it. Um, so I, I definitely hear you on that. Also, you know, so again, with different Sikh traditions, Sikh is Sikhi as a religion probably didn't come into codification until 200 years after it already started. You could say that Guru Gobind Singh and his followers directly after him is, is, are those who, in essence, created an actual religious movement. Um, when yeah. Nanak was around, there were they weren't called Sikhs; they were called Nanak Pantis, or people who just followed Nanak, people who who followed this wise man mm-hmm. named Nanak. And there's evidence that he was probably referred to as Baba Nanak and not Guru Nanak. Guru kind of is a um, right is kind of like a retrospective title given to him. So yeah. there's um that makes sense. So it's very it's very interesting around so we get into a conversation about how a religion is created you can start to see it's not so linear it's not so much a b c to z it's very non-linear and circular and it moves in a circle outwards versus a straight line forwards um yeah so 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 let's have some more questions and we'll we'll see how that gets incorporated into our conversation absolutely yeah yeah, I love that. And that makes a lot of sense that he would be called uh, Baba Nanak. And, you know, because he was, yeah, seen uh, similarly to Sadhus and Siddhas. Uh, but he was a little bit of a different breed. It was like right. he's not quite a Sadhu or a Siddha, uh, but he is a holy man. And then clearly in contact with uh, a divine reality. And he has wisdom, you know, beyond his years and and. Just, you know, his whole representation, how he held himself, how he taught, how he sang, how the teach, how he taught and, and, and the teachings he would impart on people 
was it was just charged with like dude yeah this guy knows what's up um and you know when i hear the stories about him i love that aspect um you know so one thing to mention real quick um you know there is also this idea that nanik was a while he obviously was destined to become something there seems to be a story about him before his jal samadhi or his water samadhi and then afterwards so there was like Nanak the man, he has this experience where he goes underwater. The story, if you don't know, is that he goes to take his morning bath, goes missing for multiple days, and then he emerges from the water almost as like a new person. And some people call it the Jal Samadhi or water Samadhi. And after this, he begins his like missionary work as a holy man. Obviously, he, he was very peculiar before this, but this seems to be like a defining change that happens with him. And so another thing people may not understand about Sikhi is it's called the, the, the Jyoti or the light of the Guru. There's this idea that some sort of light either was already in him and awoken or came into him. And this light is consistent throughout all of the 10 Gurus. And you'll find that sometimes they refer to Guru Angid, which, who is the second Guru, as the second Nanak. They will refer to Guru Ramdas as the fourth Nanak. They will refer to Guru Gobind Singh as the tenth Nanak, because there's this idea that what mm-hmm. was being passed on wasn't uh, the personality as much as the jyoti or the light that either again was either awoken mm-hmm. within him that was already there, or you might even interpret as like there was an interaction where the light came into him during this jal samadhi. So it's the um, it's that jyoti or light that gets passed on from him to the the following Sikh gurus. So he could, he, there's an idea that he was definitely a man yeah. first and then some sort of holy being afterwards. Right, right. Yeah, an awakened being. And that story of his initiation is so interesting um, <clears throat> and, and yet kind of vague um, in that it's like he, he went missing. They thought he was dead. They searched for him. They couldn't find him. But then three days later, he returned. You know, it's like Jesus in the sense that, uh, you know, Jesus' body left after three days. It's interesting. But it also doesn't, I don't know, really defy, defy what we believe is possible that someone could go missing. Because Nanak didn't come back and say, I held my breath that whole time. You know right. what I mean? Like, he right. didn't. He didn't try to claim some, you know, now I'm this, you know, uh, immortal being. He was just kind of like, I'm changed and I have a new way to teach and I'm going to say these things. Um, right. And the first thing that he uttered, actually, when they found him, uh, he wouldn't speak for quite a while. And they were just kind of like, like, damn, maybe he just barely survived or, you know, I'm not sure what they thought, but he wouldn't speak when they first discovered him and he had come back uh, after this uh, water samadhi. And then when he did finally speak, he said what you said earlier, which is there is no um, Muslim and there is no Hindu, or I think it was reversed. There's no Hindu and there's no Muslim. Um, Only the and one. of course that was, you know, almost like he- like heresy or something at the time. <laughs> but, so right, just the, but, uh, supposedly the locals were like, he's gone mad. He's he's literally lost mm-hmm. his mind, um, and there are a few there are a few texts where he's like, I have gone mad. As a matter of fact, I am absolutely crazy. And mm-hmm. but he's like, but I'm crazy for the divine. And if being mm-hmm. so deeply in love is, with God is crazy, then like it's 
then you're you're dang right. I am absolutely. I have absolutely lost it. So he. So people. Mm-hmm. There were people who definitely thought he lost his mind, to which he confirmed that he had, and it was a good thing. And it is what propelled him to be on such a deep path of bhakti. Yeah, yeah. And I, and I don't know the real the real story, but I almost speculate. You know, I don't think he was underwater and died and then maybe came to back to life. I almost speculate he just kind of went on a pilgrimage uh, on his own. He needed to escape. He needed to be on his own to discover the truth very much in a Buddha-type way. And I, I envision, and I might be wrong, um, but that he just kind of like swam away and went and meditated under a tree for three days and then he came back. Right. Um, right. You know, that, that makes sense to me as to how he gained his enlightenment. Um, but there is, of well, course, a is, belief that, you know, somehow he, he did an immortal type, like I'm, I'm back from the dead type task, you know. Right, right. So this is going to be important as we further the conversation around uh, Kundalini Yoga's connection to Sikhi and our abilities yeah. to uh, connect truth to myth, what did actually happen and what didn't actually happen. And we're going to find as we further this conversation around the complexity of truth and myth, we're going to talk about, we'll talk about what is an accepted narrative. And then I think it's important that we discuss what it, what does it mean to us? Because like, what does it mean to us if Guru Nanak was underwater literally for three days or if he went off for three days and swam? What is the difference between the two? What is it, what is it different for us? Mm-hmm. Because you're gonna, we're going to find that many of the stories around Nanak are both uh, to some degree believable and then some degree far-fetched. I mean, there's a story where they say his feet were pointing at the in Mecca at the, um, the holy site. And that when the guard moved his feet, the whole world moved, right? Is that, how do we, how do we work with that story as he says, well, point my, he's like, Hey, you're pointing your feet at God. He says, point my feet where they're not. And when they move his feet, the whole, there's a whole orientation of time, space and reality. Um, so we do need to find out what that means for each one of us individually. Uh, what do they call them? Suckies or these stories? What do these suckies mean for us? And are they literal? Are they up? Are they up for interpretation? And I think that's important, too, because there are some hardline Sikhs who are like, you can't do what you're doing because it's it, it's not uh, in alignment with what we believe. And it's just like, well, what we all believe is different and, and up for interpretation. And how can you say that this can't exist, but you can say this other thing can exist? So we'll, we'll get to that as we further the conversation. But it's important to know that amongst all Sikhs, the narrative slightly changes. There are people who say this for sure happened exactly as it said. And then there are other people who think that maybe this is a metaphor for wisdom to be learned within yourself. Um, and we'll talk, we'll talk yeah. It'll. Yeah. I'm sure this is going to organically come out. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Definitely resonate with that. Um, and I do find them to be kind of like poetry stories that have truth embedded in them when you can interpret it and he doesn't expect everyone to be able to interpret it this is kind of some deep spiritual knowledge that almost you need to be initiated into a spiritual understanding for it to land and make sense again even with ekon car i mean unless you are believing it in a faith sense in a religious sense without personal experience that it is all one it is still a metaphor to you 
You know, like I had the experience that right. it was all one. So you're speaking truth to me and I can see the truth. But if you don't have that experience, that firsthand initiation into the mystical, you know, like what he says may not make as much sense. But um, this is all very right, nuanced. Correct. And again, I'm 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 not a Sikh and I'm just trying my best to understand it. And I've just got a big interest in it. Um, so there's that. Right. But if you have to if you if you want to respond, go ahead. So another thing that we're going to have to consider is um, that there is colonial influence on English interpretation of a Dharmic tradition. So mm-hmm. there is this when we when we encounter many of the English translations, they are going to they are going to be translated through a lens of Abrahamic understanding mm-hmm. and due to its dominance for the last 200 years, we're seeing manifested uh, qualities of Abrahamic religion showing up in modern day Sikhism, which includes things like the personification of God being a male deity. Now, mm-hmm. we don't know if that's what Guru Nanak had said. We uh, for, Well, first off, it's not engendered in the traditional texts. And, Mm-hmm. But now it's like God is a man. It's it's starting to show up in modern Sikhi. God is a man. He's a person, and he's he himself is doing all these things. Um, so again, it is mm-hmm. going to be. I agree with you on your statement around it being poetry, poetic, and just mm-hmm. like a poem is going to mean different things for every person who reads it. It's it is a, it's very similar in my experience with Sikhi that it hits each one of us, mm-hmm. and I would almost warn against taking on the Abrahamic approach or not Abrahamic. I should say that it's the dogmatic approach of holding Sikhi as a religion, especially because for the first 200 years, that's not how it was practiced. Um, again, a lot of this comes into British colonialism, 1800s codification, segregation and categorization. Um, so what we see is Sikh, yeah. Sikhi, the religion now is, is almost like a modern interpretation of something that it's changed from. Mm-hmm. in my opinion yeah. and that seems to be the case with of course this is my opinion too you know that that many religions are so far removed from the initial teachings i mean i believe jesus was a yogi and a master and a world traveler and i i love the teachings of jesus himself i do not love modern day Catholicism and Christianity, because we know a lot of dark, deep, weird stuff has happened uh, when people are using that story to abuse their power. Um, right. I think Jesus is an OG yogi. I love him, love his words, love his philosophy, but I'm not a Christian in the sense that I follow what most modern Christians or Catholics believe these days. You know, I let everyone believe what they want. I don't not like Christians or not like Catholics. I mean, it just, it's just not for me. You know, like I, my family is Catholic. I love them, spend time with them, but I just believe a different thing about Jesus, you know? And, and I do think that many religions are going to get carried away because it's just the nature of human uh, being a human. Uh, They oversimplify it. So I think that, that, um, what we're saying about how maybe some Sikhs believe that God is a, a male and is kind of in the clouds manipulating events is just a very oversimplification of 
the the real idea and it's just kind of where they are you know there's this idea in um with spiral dynamics about these these different ways people view the world these different layers of consciousness people operate within and some people are just on a little like a little bit more of a simple scope of vision and they may see it that way and still identify as a Sikh. Someone might be on a bit of a higher, more broad scope of uh, how they see um, the teachings or just uh, God in general and see it as that energy. Um, and it's just, and it's not one's right and one's wrong. It's just what scope you're looking through, what per, what's your perception at that time. And that can vary even day to day. Sometimes I might think of the right. things in a very simple way and other times I think of things in a very complex way, you know. Right. And so I think what you said just nailed it on the head. And it's so important to keep that in context because, um, so say you're new to this path and you're, you don't have knowledge and you meet one person from this group who is very assertive in their statements around what it is they believe. And so we see this in American Sikhism or Sikhi. Uh, especially for those who come from the path of Kundalini yoga, that they're going to encounter many people from different uh, groups of, of belief telling them that they're not Sikh, that they, what they're doing is not Sikhi. How dare they associate with Sikhi? And they're coming from their own perspective, which we want to honor and say is true. But also, as we have just stated, we're all at different spots. One one Sikh might say this and another person might say this. So essentially, we're, we're pushing up against, and I believe because one group is relatively ignorant and one group is a heritage, the ignorant group is going to tend to be submissive to that pressure. And they're going to start to not believe in their own experiences. They're going to start to doubt themselves and the experiences that they've had. And they might even feel guilty about the experiences they had or that they're appropriating something that they're not welcome to have a relationship with, which in my opinion is incredibly false. Um, I hold the same dynamic that you have just stated that we're all at different spaces and different levels. And that's important because I have seen people run off of the path of Sikhi due to assertive or even almost aggressive Sikhs telling them, how dare they? You're not welcome. What you're doing is not Sikhi. Go away. Especially if you're involved in Kundalini yoga. And, sh mm -hmm. and to be honest, shame on those people who are pushing people away because they are practicing yoga. Because the guru, if we really get into like Sikh dynamics, the guru is who brought all of us here in this way. And these Sikhs of the guru are pushing other Sikhs away because they disagree with a aspect of their lifestyle. So especially if you don't, if you're not aware that there's multiple sects within Sikhism who all believe in different aspects, you know, if you're, if you're ignorant to it, you're going to think that this person who comes from India must be right. So I better, I better feel guilty and I better run away. I better stop doing what I'm doing because this person said I'm wrong. If you don't have that kind of knowledge or context, you will feel that pressure. I felt that pressure. Around 2015, I started going to Gurdwara, and I would have so many people come up to me and be like, you're one of those Yogi Bhajan people, aren't you? Oh, you don't, you know, just so you know, you're not a Sikh. Like, whatever you think you're doing, you're not a Sikh. I had many people at Gurdwara tell me I'm not a Sikh. And I was just like, what is going on? <laughs> like, what is this? I don't understand. I don't get why right. people are telling me this stuff. Um and, and, and that certainly put me in a space of doubt that put me in a space of there was from 2015 to like 2018, I was 
deeply veering left and right, left and right about what my relationship was to it and how I was going to incorporate it. There was a time where I stopped practicing Kundalini yoga because I was encountering Sikhs who were telling me, you can't be a Sikh and do yoga. They're just incompatible Mm -hmm. and, and it's one or the other. Um, and then when I did that, I Mm -hmm. found that like, I didn't, it, it, so for me and my path, there's a conjunction between the two. And I found that Sikhi without my, without my Amrit Vela practice and yoga practice and meditation practice doesn't feel this, it doesn't hit the same. And for me, Kundalini yoga without my devotion and love for Sikhi and like the guru, it doesn't hit the same. For it, for me, it is a, like a mixed, it is a dual path for me that they're so close and parable. Um, and and it, yeah. it took me a lot of time. And, and to some degree, self-assuredness and confidence to walk my path and be like, this is what I'm doing. And whether or not you agree with me or you don't agree with me, it doesn't matter because I know it's my path. Right. And what I'm doing is out of love right. too, right? I'll, we should definitely right. state that. It's out of love. And how could that be? Absolutely. How could that be the wrong thing to do? Yeah. Yeah. I feel like this is a sensitive topic, but I'll say that the people that try to run other people off who are trying to learn and uh, or even actually truthfully identify as a Sikh don't understand the philosophy of Sikhism themselves because I agree the philosophy of Sikhism is that we're all one and we're all one you know why would you run someone off that is you it's literally you right you know and I would look for the silver lining in if I was a Sikh that saw maybe someone coming into the lineage, but from a different angle, from the Kundalini Yoga angle as, hey, they're trying to learn. I should encourage them to learn. I should encourage them to, you know, go deeper into this practice so that they can maybe understand it to the level I do. Um, Certainly there are, you know, like, oh, I'm new to this and there are veterans but I feel like a true veteran of Sikhism would understand the teachings themselves and welcome people to try and deepen their understanding of what it is, even if they are a newbie. Um, that would make right. sense to me to be like, you're, you're not an instant veteran, so get out of here. You know what I mean? It's like, or you're right, just trying right. to, to learn, you know? Right. Yeah, I agree that it is a sensitive topic. Um, it's definitely a sensitive topic. And so then it, so then we kind of veer into a conversation around destiny. And <clears throat> if this is your avenue that brought you into Seeky, then that's what it, that's your path. And no amount mm-hmm. of somebody else telling you that your path is not the path you're supposed to be on is going to change the fact that it's your path. Um, and if you, mm-hmm. and again, it takes a long time of self-assuredness to, to fully understand that. And then, the confidence to run with it because without that you're going to perhaps listen to those other people who say it, what you're doing is wrong. You should do it the way I think it should be done. Um, and even though there's sex within Sikhism, we might all still gather at the same place. And, you know, there's going to be a military tradition of the Khalsa or of the Nihung tradition that is very unique and they follow a different set of Mariata or code of conduct. That's a group of Sikhs who, who do things like eat meat. They, they use bong, they make cannabis drinks. Right. And the, and that's considered to be a very traditional 
a very traditional tradition uh, lineage of Sikhi, but mo- most modern Sikhs don't practice that. Most modern Sikhs reject that. Um, and so if you had a Nihung, so if you took Amrit and they're saying, don't take any substances, and then you meet a Nihung Singh, it's like, hey, drink this cannabis drink with me and let's meditate. There's going to be a pretty big confliction there, right? Mm-hmm. And, I, and I don't think one of them is right yeah. and one of them is wrong. It's learning to trust your tradition mm-hmm. that you were that the guru brought you into. And so if you came to this through Kundalini Yoga, I think it's awesome to uh, learn about our brothers and sisters and the varying traditions within Sikhi. But there's also a certain mm-hmm. destiny that's like, yo, Yogi Kansa, Gur Sikh Yogi, this is your this is your gift. You're not a Nihang and you're not mm-hmm. a Nirmala. You're not a Namdari. You're not a you know what I mean? Like this is how you were brought to yep. it. And hope and hopefully through God's grace you can learn to accept it, embrace it, and not only embrace it, but like run with it. Find your right. love with it and run with it. Get on the pony and ride. <laughs> right? That's the old saying. Yeah. So yeah. um that is yeah. that took me ten years to understand. That took me t- a decade of, right. of identifying as a Sikh yeah. and and coming into that conclusion with it. Right. Thousand percent. Yeah, I think the really the take home um, message is like accepting that people are in different parts of their spiritual path. Yeah. If we can accept people um, and realize that in their particular moment in the spiritual path, this is where they're at. You should encourage them and accept them and embrace that they are at that moment and not shame them for not being where you are more or less, right. I think is the takeaway. Right. And even if they may that, never yeah. be where you're uh, at, they might, we're all climbing to the top of the mountain, but we might be taking a completely different path. Um, and so, mm-hmm. and then, you know, one of the beautiful things about Siki is that it says there are millions of paths. Every path leads to God. You just got to walk your path. So, you know, there's no, one of the things yeah. that I think is so beautiful about Siki is there is no, um, we're the chosen people. We're the right ones. We're the only ones who are going to make it right. Which is what I grew up with. I grew up with a tradition that was very much exclusive and like everyone else isn't going to get to where we're going. Um, Sikhi's like, Hey, if you're a Christian, be a good Christian. If you're a Muslim, be a good Muslim. If you are Hindu, be a good Hindu. Uh, and, um, and walk your Dharma. Walk your Dharma is basically the biggest message. Mm-hmm. Thousand percent. Yeah, just how I go about it is I um, love and study several traditions from Tibetan Buddhism to um, uh, the Bhagavad Gita to Sikhism to uh, Patanjali and the practice of yoga. And I just kind of pull from uh, each tradition what is useful to me. Oh, I didn't even mention Taoism, which is one of my favorites. Yeah, right. I I pull from each tradition what resonates with my soul. And I don't particularly choose one and exclude all others. But I find the beauty in each that speak to me and help me go along my spiritual path um, even deeper to learn even more. And I think it's a good thing to be well-versed on many religions and what they believe. I think it makes you a more well-rounded spiritual person to actually know what do Taoists believe? What do Sikhs believe? What does Tibet, uh, Tibetan Buddhist monk believe? Um, and, and again, respect them all and learn from them all. 
Right. Yeah. Um, so philosophically, I'm right there with you. I definitely am pulling from every philosophy and every truth tradition that I have encountered. It is making up the the philosophy that I live by and operate and understand my relationship to the universe in front of me as well within me. And then um, with like initiation into a specific path and, you know, say at some point you do hear that call or feel that desire to do such a thing what has been so useful for me around that is what we call rehet mariada or your code of conduct that more or less each one of those traditions is going to suggest a lifestyle and a way of living to to bring out the highest experience of the philosophy we're speaking about and so you can i can you can certainly still entertain every every philosophy and every truth that you encounter but a, a huge gift for me with my when I eventually committed to my path as a Sikh and and took Amrit or or even more appropriately saying I gave my head to the Guru, right? We don't actually take Amrit; we give our head to the Guru. Um, it was it was taking on the discipline of the lifestyle that's going to bring out the best version of myself. Um, and that mm. and so to the uninitiated, that looks dogmatic, and that like oh, you've got to follow all these rules. But for me, and I believe anyone who, who is who is walking their path, it, it's always out of bhakti and it's always out of devotion. So some people be like, you always have to tie a turban. It's like, I never have to tie a turban. I choose to tie a turban. You, you're not allowed to cut your hair. It's like, it's not that I'm not allowed to. I choose to grow my hair out. You always have to do this thing. It's like, absolutely not. I never have to do anything. I'm this. These are all actions taken out of love that I want to do. Um, and when you switch that kind of yeah. dynamic, it, it's no longer this oppressive thing you have to follow as much as these are, these are the, the tools my guru gave me to live a life of excellence. And I think if for, for my own experience, when I applied those techniques, it brought out a better me. And that's, a, and that's enough, you know, that's enough said. Um, so for me, it's been a useful experience mm -hmm. to take that initiation. Mm -hmm. um, and it has been an amazing tool to help help my own little being grow into a bigger, better version of myself subjectively. Love it. Yeah, that's beautiful. That's beautiful. Yeah, I think we hit those topics pretty good. Um, but the next topic that I have is how Kundalini Yoga is linked to Sikhism. You know, we've touched on it quite a bit, um, but what is your view um, on the link between Sikhism and Kundalini Yoga? Well, um, so I feel like it's a two branch conversation and I'll tell you it since you asked specifically mm -hmm. my view on it, I think that Kundalini yoga is a tradition that has been passed down throughout the lineage, starting with Baba Siddhi Chand. Um, so Baba mm -hmm. Siddhi Chand is the son of Guru Nanak. Uh, who, when his father was on his travels, he he more or less related to the yogis. You know, so Guru Nanak was gone for the majority of his children's life. I think he goes on his travels when Baba Siri Chand is nine, maybe seven, and he comes back at the, at a time when Baba Siri Chand was already an, a full adult. So even though he had his um, father's teachings, he predominantly seems to be raised by an ascetic group of yogis. So Baba Siddhi Chand seems to be the initiation of a yogic lifestyle combined with Sikh knowledge. Um, and Baba Siddhi Chand goes on to create his own tradition called the Udasi or the Udasin Sikhs, 
um, which was an ascetic group of Sikhs who, you know, practiced renunciation. They practiced uh, mm-hmm. yogasan, and they also revered the teachings of Baba Sirichan's father. They also had a deep love for Sikhi. That being said, they also had a Sanatan Dharmic kind of idea. They also worked with the five primary Hindu gods like uh, Shiva, Vishnu, Ganesh, Dur- Durga, um, mm-hmm. and Shakti. So, so they also have this um, mm-hmm. connection to the older Hindu traditions as well. And that lineage has been passed down and passed down and passed down. Some people say that they were in discord with Sikhi, that somehow there is an, a narrative that Guru Nanak rejects Baba Siri Chand and is like, no, I don't like you because you're a yogi. I think that's more of a nuanced conversation than a full-on hardline fact. You know, it's hard for me to, to believe that the Guru would, have, would outright reject his son. And not only that, we see evidence throughout the following six Gurus that Baba Siri Chand was held in high esteem. He was respected by the, the following Gurus. Um, from the stories of him meeting with Guru Ramdas and cleaning his feet uh, with his beard, to the the stories of one of Guru Hargobind's sons, so the sixth Guru, his son Guru uh, Guru Ditta, I believe, it becomes the second uh, leader of the Udasis. So Guru Hargobind gives one of his sons to Baba Sirichan to follow his path. So there's there there's certainly a narrative that the Udasi Sikhs maintained good relationships with the the followers of Guru Nanak and the following Gurus. So there's a yoga sect that are, that it rises at the same time through the lineage of Guru Nanak that has continued to pass down parallel. It's shown up throughout many generations and recorded history of Sikhi. Um, there was even a time when the British colonialism colonial rule was looking to kill the Khalsa and they were running off the Khalsa. And at this time, the the Udasi Sikhs came into the Gurdwaras and for almost a century ran the Gurdwaras. Um, so their mm-hmm. history is deeply rich within the Sikh tradition, um, and it's recorded and acknowledged that they were existing. And the story is that the that this tradition has been brought down and brought down and brought down until it, it has arrived at Yogi Bhajan. Um, mm-hmm. And Yogi and I believe it's uh, Yogi Bhajan's teachers. Um, we have Sant Hazare, and I think a, a man named Baba Sohan. Uh, the, these people were had both the traditions of the yogis, but also the Nihangs, which is that warrior militant class. Which I believe is why Kundalini yeah. Yoga also has this really strong military vibe to it. It has a very like hardlined. You know, an interesting an interesting thing about the American yogi Sikhs is we all wear like the bana of Guru Gobind Singh. So it's that chola that's almost kind of like a man dress kind of thing, which is which is mm-hmm. actually warfare attire. You know, most modern Sikhs mm-hmm. don't wear that kind of stuff. They don't wear bana of Guru Gobind Singh, but but a lot of the three H O Sikh Dharma Sikh people do. Mm-hmm. As as Yogi Bhajan, there's evidence that he was influenced. One of his teachers was a Nihung associate. Um, so essentially, there is a rich tradition that has been passed down that Yogi Bhajan was a part of. And Yogi Bhajan also learned from many other legitimate yogis. Um, Diendra Brahmacharya predominantly seems to be the one that get that the, all this like. Right. 
that seems to come from from this right. person who is a recognized yogi, uh, you know, very popular yogi yeah. in like the 1950s and stuff like this. So there's certainly the the real yogic aspects aside from the 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 possibly true but also possibly mythical lineage of it is but there's certainly real people who have brought it into a practice. And then he also had a um, he also had a teacher named um, Sant Visarasing who was a huge devotee of Baba Siri Chand and the mantra ek onkar Satnam City Wat Hey Guru. It's thought that he learned that from from Sant Visra Singh, who who learned that meditation from Baba Siri Chand in his astral form. So there will be many people who want to claim that Kundalini Yoga has nothing to do with Sikhi. But I've obviously laid out a lot of ideas and evidence before you that would counter that claim. And say no, right. it is it is connected to it, right? Um, mm-hmm. But that being said, just like Hatha Yoga has a connection to Hinduism, ninety nine percent of people who practice Hatha Yoga are not Hindu. They don't mm-hmm. identify as Hindu. They might say Namaste or Om, but essentially, they're just practicing something for the betterment of themselves which is also applicable to kundalini yoga. It can be as mm-hmm. spiritual and religious as you want it to be, and it can be as secular and mental neurological hacking as you want it to be. There's a, there's a, a space for both of those. And I think, um, I think more or less the individual soul is guided to it in whatever nature it suits them. You'll find the teacher who's going to teach yeah. the thing that, that your soul is needing. Right. Absolutely. Yeah, that, that brings up a lot for sure. And I think that that is a, a good lay of the land. Um, one thing that comes up in my mind, and, and maybe this is pretty controversial, but was that Guru Nanak himself had a deep respect for yogis. Um, I remember one of the first stories was, you know, his father had given him some money to go conduct an ethical trade, at, like a town's post, like you know, the next town over. And Guru Nanak thought the most ethical thing he could do is he had bumped into these ascetic yogis who don't eat unless they're fed. Um, And, you know, these are meditators. These are yogis. These are sadhus. He thought the best, most ethical thing he could do with the money his father gave to him would be to feed these holy men. So, you know, that was a young Guru Nanak, but he he had a, a reverence for the holy man, for the yogi, um, for the meditator, for the ascetic. Um, later, he spent um, time with siddhas, who are, again, yogis. Um, so, right. I would even almost argue that Guru Nanak was a yogi, not that he would practice the exact kundalini yoga that we practice, but when you're a meditator, uh, an early morning um practitioner, um, a kirtan, devout kirtan um, practitioner. I mean, these are all different limbs of yoga. And so we could say in that sense, Guru Nanak was a yogi, even though maybe he wasn't practicing what Yogi Bhajan and Kundalini Yoga uh, practice exactly, as far as the Kriyas. Right. Right. Yeah, 100%. You could say that the spirit of the yogi 
has been passed down, even if the physical form of Kriya um, has has is a relatively new interpretation of it. I think that there is probably a, a highly like high likelihood that. Um, there might be some a handful of traditional kriyas that are passed along, but I, I also believe that Yogi Bhajan probably, through his in, intuitive and highly uh, receptive state, delivered new things all the time, um, mm-hmm. and 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 I I don't have an issue with that because it works. <laughs> so so right, there's right. a um, it, you know if it if it fell flat, you'd be like, oh, this person's just making it up. Some people are like, oh, he made it all up. And they get really, um, mm-hmm. there's an energy of bitterness when right. they say that. But yeah. uh, but Yogi Bhajan, amongst the people who knew him and the people I've met and interacted with him, were like, this dude was on another level. And he was, you yeah. know, there's this, there's this picture of him where he's like wizardly and he's like, seems to be controlling like fire and ice at the same time. There are so many people mm-hmm. who have an experience of him in this like wizard, wizard-like state that um, there must be some sort of truth to it. And now I'm not just talking about like 3HO Sikh Dharma people. I have read mm-hmm. unbiased testimonials of people. There was one thing I found on the internet one time where this guy was talking about consciousness and transcendence. And he, I don't know when he wrote this article, It was, but he basically was like, I've only met one person who I actually think was legit and this and that. And he goes back, he's like, Oh, it's Yogi Bhajan. I met Yogi Bhajan one time. And this person just like had a a psyche an aura or something about him that he had never experienced anywhere else before. So there, so there is this kind of idea that if it was made up on the spot, he still was tapped into something that delivered a transmission. Um, So whether or not it's the same thing as what Guru Nanak was doing, it has the spirit of Sikhi, mm-hmm. and especially because Yogi Bhajan was a Sikh himself, um, that that comes through, mm-hmm. especially if that's what you're looking for, um, because it's yeah. there for anyone who wants it. I also met a man, I, I know this man, his name's yeah. Hari Simran, um, and he said, you know, he was a long-term mm-hmm. student of Yogi Ji, and he basically was like, his mission was to, to pass on the lineage of the Khalsa it looked like it was yoga and to many people it was yoga, but he was really trying to, to keep up the mission of Guru Gobind Singh and bring the Khalsa to the West. And that was his, like, I don't know if you want to say his yeah. hidden agenda or his sub agenda. Um, and that he was like, what? And he talked about how when he, when he was initiated into the Khalsa, Yogi Bhajan was no longer his teacher, but his brother. And it was like, now you're here with me in this space. Let's do the mission together. Um, so I think, so again, that goes back to the idea that Kundalini Yoga is as spiritual and or religious as you want it to be, because there's so many people who don't want anything to do with that. <laughs> and there are a random few select people who are, who are really called to that space. It's available for anybody who wants to, to tap into it. And then it's just this really amazing method of, healing traumatic wounds, healing generational wounds, building the neuroplasticity of the mind, incorporating uh, or encountering your limiting belief systems and overcoming them. It is a 100% a practical tool for self-improvement that can be completely devoid of spirituality should a person want to do it that way. Right. Yeah, yeah, well said. Um, What came to mind there was that 
um, you know, Yogi Bhajan was a Sikh and a practicing Sikh. Um, and what he did was elaborate on the practice. Um, Kundalini Yoga was an elaboration on on Sikhi and, and on being, you know, a part of the Khalsa. Um, it was it is interesting you mentioned the military vibe there. There is a bit of like a let's um, encourage, encourage and cultivate the warrior spirit in Kundalini Yoga. Some of these are very warrior type poses. They're even called warrior, you know, some of them. Um, right. And... And that's such another beautiful aspect of uh, Siki that maybe you could share about, which is the Khalsa and the the becoming a type of spiritual warrior um, who is capable of defending oneself or defending the weak or defending the defenseless, um, but but still holding a lot of ethics and, and morality around violence and, and only ever using it as an absolute last, um, you know, like last step, resort kind uh, of you know, right, he would right. re- last resort. There you go. Yeah. yeah. Um, what do you think so about, the, like, how would you define the Khalsa? <laughs> the Khalsa, geez, Louise, what a, what a task. Um, well, hang on. I want to first bring it into context around, you know, you said you had mentioned yeah. the Kundalini tradition having this kind of warrior aspect to it. And the first thing that came to my mind mm-hmm. was this mantra called Jaite Gong, which is like hell to the mm-hmm. sword or like ode to the sword. Um, and it's a mantra we use in Kundalini yoga that more or less reveres what's called Shastar or weaponry as a holy mechanism for symbolically, you could say, destroying truth. I'm sorry, destroying falsehood and revering truth. It cuts away uh, deceit. It cuts away the what's known as the, the panch jot or the five thieves or the five uh, vices of life, right? So we look at weapons symbolically um, and this warrior kind of status as a good thing, typically as a overcoming our own issues uh, versus warfare amongst other people. It's being spiritually strong and having a fortitude. And we embody certain symbols that help us do that. Like the Kirpan, right? The Kirpan, uh, which is a, which is a dagger like item. It's different than a dagger, but to a modern person, that's probably what they think it is um, that we keep on our persons as a way to, uh, there's a practical, if I ever needed to stop an aggression that was putting someone else's life in danger or my life in danger, I have the, I've been given like kind of the authority to do such a thing. However, it's also symbolic that it, it's like a, it, it's like, it's uh, helping shape my psyche to always be ready to always know that, that I'm prepared to stand up. Right. So there's the, the psychological effect of carrying your Kirpan and then the actual practice, practical use of carrying your kirpan, yeah. Um, and yeah, I use as you said. You know, we um, there's a there's a holy text called the Zephyr Nama, which was written by Guru Gobind Singh, in which he more or less states that using the sword is righteous as a last me- as a last measure when all other when all other methods of negotiation have failed, and you absolutely must you can use the sword as a just way of being. Um, and as I, I interpret that as it's a defense item, it's not an aggressive item. 
Um, we are not aggressors. And if you even look into the Sikh history, I can't recall one battle or one event that was aggressive, um, especially in the context of the gurus. What has happened since the gurus and personal movements, that's a different story. Uh, but at the time of the gurus, it was always defensive, never aggressive, um, and usually in the protection of other people. In fact, even Teg Bahadur, the ninth Sikh guru, is called the Shield of Dharma or the Shield of India because he sacrificed his life to save the, uh, a group of Hindu Rajputs or like kings, you could say. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's always been used in that kind of context around protection, self-fortitude, right. uh, never aggression, like all good martial arts. Absolutely. Yeah, there's also, absolutely, yeah, yeah. As soon as I said that too, there's also a form of martial arts um, called gata, um, which is... Which is, you'll find it in Kundalini communities, um, but it's like sword play, how to do sword. Um, there's other weaponry involved in, to, in it. Um, mm-hmm. And you will, it's a really beautiful art. It's almost like an art. Mar- it is a martial art. And literally to watch people do do this practice, uh, it's it's fanciful. It's amazing. It's beautiful to watch. And it shows up in some Kundalini communities, Um and some of the med- there's a, f- a few meditations that are associated with it around developing rhythm and moving to a beat. You know, a lot of the the bhangra and the and the Punjabi drums that we hear can be used for this like fighting style. Uh, so it also shows mm-hmm. up in that kind of way. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. When I learned the story, maybe you can remind me which guru it was, but uh, about why the Khalsa needed to be formed was because one guru was kind of taken away and tortured, right? Yeah, fifth the fifth guru, um, Guru Arjun Dev, he more or less was tortured for five days. He was put on a hot plate um, and he was martyred uh, and, and basically tortured. And the story is that he never once complained about it. You know, they say basically he stayed in samadhi the entire time in a deep sense of bliss. And even in that torture, he was like, it's God's will and it's all good. If this is what's happening, why Guru? It's all good. And um, so mm-hmm. so the story of Guru Arjun is a deep sense of sacrifice and remaining truthful even in sacrifice. Uh, one second. Hey, can you go play with that in the bedroom? Mm-hmm. Thank you. So there's a deep sense of sacrifice uh, with Guru Arjun. However, the sixth guru, his son, uh, who is Guru Hargobin, because of this, there is a sudden change in the entire dynamics of Sikhi. From the first to fifth guru, you could say it was all saintly and holy. Sant, it was the Sant path. And then from the, the sixth to the tenth, it becomes Sapai or so- soldier. So saint for the first five, soldier for the last five. Guru Hargobin effectively creates a military within the Sikh community. He teaches his his Sikhs how to fight. Uh, he classically has two swords that are called Miri and Piri, and one means spiritual authority and the other means temporal authority. So in other words, the, the ability to be a sovereign spiritual person, but also kind of kick butt if you have to. Um, and the lineage of Guru Hargobin uh, passes down to Teg Bahadur and then eventually into Guru Gobind Singh. So I think I'm pretty sure Guru uh, Hargobin is Guru Gobind Singh's either grandfather or great-grandfather. Um, but essentially starts with Hargobin, ends with Guru Gobind Singh, and Guru Gobind Singh making the Khalsa. Um, there's also some texts that are interesting that suggest that the Khalsa was always a concept even at the time of Guru Nanak, I'd have to, 
I don't have that information available in front of me. So it would be, I would be disingenuous to try to explain it. But there is an idea that even from the time of Guru Nanak, they, some people say Guru Nanak had a kirpan, um, and he more or less, in this idea that the same light was passing from Guru, Gobind, uh, Guru Nanak to Guru Gobind Singh, that the Khalsa was always going to come forward. It just took those 200 years to get to it. So it's a, it's another interesting idea. Yeah, very interesting. Absolutely. Yeah, I mean, it makes sense to me that if, you know, one of the gurus who we hold in such high regard was kind of taken away and there was no self-defense mechanism available (laughs) that uh, you would want to ensure that doesn't keep happening, you know, as someone who holds these, these this is a nice guy, you know what I mean? Like, he doesn't deserve what happened to him, right? And uh, it it makes sense to me that, that you would want to create a defense force uh, so that your gurus aren't just constantly tortured, right? Right. Well, you know, so the other important thing, though, is it wasn't just about Sikhs helping Sikhs out. The whole entire time period of, of this time in India was one of intense warfare and occupation and essentially an outside force invaded India and was trying to take it over. And was mm-hmm. and that particular group practiced forced conversion, where if they if you didn't convert to their religion, you were either killed or enslaved. Um, and they were running shop. They were definitely the ones who were forcefully taking over, and they are the ones who brought martyrdom on Guru Arjan, and they did that to many Hindus as well, or many people who just basically weren't part of their their tradition. Um, so it wasn't just Sikhs taking care of Sikhs. It was like Sikhs taking care of the entire land and more or less saying, Hey, your, your oppressive and tyrannical rule is not going to go unchallenged. You can't just kill everybody who doesn't want to convert to your religion. And we're going to take a stand against that. Right. Yep. Exactly. And that's, you know, I resonate with, with that line of thinking and, again, why I'm so interested in Sikhism. Um, So that's awesome that we hit that. Um, I have about two more topics while we have some more time left. Um, But one of them was around the technology of Kirtan and Mantra. Um, You know, for those that don't know, Kirtan is kind of singing um, these hymns. Um, They don't have to originate from Nanak, but in Kundalini Yoga, a lot of them do. Um, And what mantra is, is it's a tool to focus the mind, um, calm the mind, bring the mind into like a, a more, yeah, a more focused state. And I wanted to explain what I feel is going on when I practice Kirtan with the hymns of Nanak um, or mantra. And then I would love to hear from your, uh, your opinion what the technology of both of these is as well. Um, so, but for myself... Yeah understanding that a lot of these are enlightened phrases, enlightened words, um, by us aligning with enlightened words and uh, an enlightened philosophy, particularly if you can um, meditate on what the words mean as well and and feel them coursing through you in a bhakti way uh, emanating from the heart, um, we're aligning ourselves um, with truth in that way of like resonating an enlightened 
um, thought or resonating and then, uh, you know, the, the, the enlightened words of a master. Um, when I, for instance, use these mantras and I'll, it, it doesn't happen like the, the very moment I begin, but certainly a few minutes into, uh, a mantra or a kirtan practice, um, I start to get this, this really peaceful, um, deep reverence. Many times I cry tears of beauty and ecstasy. And again, it's in my mind is because I'm aligning with these enlightened words and this enlightened uh, thought of it's all one. Um, now for yourself, you know, feel free, feel free to respond to what I've said, but how would you define um, what Kirtan or mantra is, is doing for us? Beautiful. What you said. Um, and I think you, you have really highlighted a lot of truths that I could only agree with actually. Um, some interesting context is, uh, especially in relationship to Sikhi. So, so one within the Guru Granth Sahib, which is our holy scripture, there are there are uh, many sections of it that are written by Hindu saints. There are many sections of it written by Muslim saints. There are are multiple sections written by Sikh gurus. So I think that demonstrates that the divine is not exclusive to one group of people. So whether or not you're using a, whether or not you're using a, a Hindu mantra or you're using a Sikh mantra, um, I think it's evident in my opinion that all of these techniques seem to work, uh, especially when they're coming from that heightened, heightened element, right? There's a, there's an idea that the yogis don't create mantra. They discover the mantra um, and, and I say yogi, but that could be interchangeable with holy man, saint, seer, rishi. Um, to some degree, they're pulling in from the cosmic ethers. Uh, and they're, again, like you said, from this enlightened state. So I agree with all of that 100%. And that when we recreate these sounds, we seem to be recreating the consciousness that those higher states were, those, those seers and, and sages were embodying at the time. We experience that when yeah. we chant for sure. Um, secondly, there's also, and then if I get a little bit more centric on Sikh teachings, we say that, that because Guru Nanak and all of the, the following gurus were in such a divine state since the gods was self-realized within them, that what they were saying were the words of God, right? So if, I mean, and you and I are saying this all the time too, maybe we're not just in that, that high, highly evolved state to where it's such a, a deep resonance. But they call it Bani. We call it Bani. You're B-A-N-I, Bani. And we do Bani every day. Japji is part of our Bani's or our prayers. Um, and the Shabad Bani or Panj Bani. That essentially the words of the Guru are the words of God. However you want to relate to that word. And that when you vibrate those words, you are more or less shaking up the vibrations within yourself to align with the vibration of God however it is that you want to define that word. Mm -hmm. um, so there's literally, on one level, you could say you're recreating the state of consciousness that people had. On a, from the Sikh mm -hmm. tradition, you're literally, you're literally repeating words that God brought into existence. And there's a, so there's a certain mm -hmm. sacredness and holiness to that. And if yeah. you experience in that way, it's very powerful, very powerful to, yeah. to, to not just believe it, but experience that these are words that God has brought here. 
Um, Kirtan, you know, you asked about Kirtan. A very interesting thing is Guru Nanak said that in the dark age of Kali Yuga, which we are in, that Kirtan is the most powerful practice. This is also kind of where the whole idea of yoga is not is not purposeful is because Guru Nanak didn't talk about yoga. He talked about Kirtan. And he said that was the technique mm-hmm. uh, for Sikhs specifically was Kirtan in the, in the dark age. This was the, the one thing that was more powerful than anything is to do Kirtan. Um, so that's, I think that's probably another aspect of why there's this whole conflict within the two communities around like, why are you doing yoga? We're supposed to just do Kirtan. And if you go to Gudwara, they're not going to be doing yoga. We're going to be doing Kirtan for an hour. You know, they have the Ragis mm-hmm. singing all of the Shabbats from the, from the Guru Granth Sahib. Um, mm-hmm. And if you go there, it's a, it's a different experience than a yoga class. So Kirtan is its own like category. It's its own little space, super powerful. Um, mm-hmm. And I love that you resonate with that and that you, you know, you've brought up Kirtan multiple times. So I, you know, I would definitely encourage you to continue to dive into that if that seems to be a calling for you. And then <laughs> from a technological level, Hey, one, one second. Hey, come on. I'll, I'll be done in a little bit. Okay. Uh, my son's wanting to play. <laughs> um, then, so from a technological level, we're literally stimulating the meridians on the roof of your mouth. It's like when you say the mantra, HUD, right? Not HAR, but HUD. Yeah. The tongue is flicking against mm-hmm. the roof of the mouth. HUD, 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 HUD. That's creating a vibration mm-hmm. within the body. That vibration is affecting the hypothalamus. The hypothalamus is considered to be like the master gland that then tells the pituitary gland to secrete. It tells this thing to do that thing. So there's a literal endocrine system response through the process of chanting mantra. So again, this goes back into the whole like secular yoga. Like you don't have to believe in any of this stuff we're saying. If you do it, you're going to have an endocrine response and you're going to literally have a hormonal adjustment and a chemical rebalancing within your body that you're going to probably experience as feeling good. Um, So, you know, so, so, so it's, it's a, Again, man, it just like shows up wherever you're ready to meet it at. If you're if you're here for neurohacking and you want to get your chemistry in balance, we got you. If you're here because you want to practice the deep sacred sciences, uh, we got you. If you're here because you want to religiously experience this tradition, we got you. Uh, and some people want to do all three. Yeah. Some people want to do this, but not that. And it's a it's a beautiful experience. For those who call to it. I, and so for me personally, even though I'm a diehard Sikh, and for me, if I go to a class, I want the Sikh stuff, I don't teach any Sikh stuff in my class. I, I As a teacher, I, I am 99% neurohacking, biological hacking. There is absolutely no religious context to any classes I teach in Kundalini Yoga um, because I want everybody to become a better person and I know that the people who are interested in Sikhi are going to pop up when they pop up. They're going to be the curious-minded people. Mm-hmm. Um, and even, even in fact, g- the the guru says that that more or less, if you to be a Sikh, one is rare. There's not a lot of Sikhs. And two, if, to be a Sikh, you you more or less are predestined. And if it's your destiny to be one, there's mm-hmm. no getting around it. Uh, you either are or you aren't. Mm-hmm. And, you know, what's interesting is I have this huge revolutionary experience when I listen to Jabji. I have met people who are like, I hate Jabji. That is the worst part of the Kundalini practice. You want me to get up and listen to this boring 15, 20-minute prayer? It's the worst part of Kundalini Yoga. And so mm-hmm. so I think that shows that it, all of us are called to it for a different reason. 
and that it's actually, I think it's more of a rarity for the people to pop up in the Sikh part of it, especially at this point in time. In the Aquarian age, when religion and dogma is becoming less useful, I think it's going to move further and further away from the Sikh tradition. There will always be, I think, lineage holders, but I don't think it will be as useful as a tool when the world just needs help. The world needs to know how to meditate. The world needs to know how to regulate impulse. The world needs to know that they can feel happiness and joy in life. The world needs to know that they can embrace their pain and that they can move through hardship and that uh, the, the dark side of our path is an appropriate side of our path, just as much as the light is, that there's balance, that pain is necessary. And, you know, when you're holding your arm out for 11 minutes and you're shaking, you're teaching yourself yeah. to not run from pain. You're teaching your, and then that shows yeah. up in our life when an event happens that hurts, that we can hold space for that just a little bit more than normal. Mm-hmm. And as we grow in our practice, a little even more, a little more, a little more, a little more. And then suddenly... Mm-hmm we're taking life as it is. Um, and that's useful for anybody atheist to the most deepest theologian. We all need that. Yeah, Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Um, one thing you said at the end there brought up this one, uh, teaching from Guru Nanak, which was when he was visiting the Siddhas, which are these, you know, yogis that meditate in the Himalayas and the mountains. And, they asked him, how's it going out there? You know, cause we're up here. And he right. said, the world is full of darkness and you are the people that can help. And you're up here hiding in the mountains. Right. <laughs> and and so that's you. why he teaches and, and Kundalini yoga teaches as well to be a spiritual householder, um, right, right, to be right. in the world, but, but not of it, you know, because there is so much darkness and those of us that, can carry some light and then ease the pain of others should be amongst the people so that we can do that and not just run and hide. <laughs> right. Right. 100%. So that, um, so that seems to be also another thing within like Siki says not to do yoga. I believe and many people who share the same philosophy would say that they're talking about the running away, living in the woods, extending your life beyond normal, uh, normal grace, you know, living to be 500 years old up on a mountaintop. That's what mm-hmm. they're referring to as a yogi versus the, what we're doing as householders or grihast yoga um, and being the embodiment of divine in everyday reality amongst the Maya we are showing up. And um, yeah. you know, man, so that's another qu- conversation around destiny and it's a heavy, it's a heavy um, weight to hold to be like, oh man, I've got to be light and darkness. Um, and to say that from a non-egotistical place, right? Cause some people get off on like, I'm going to save the world. So it's not like that. It's mm-hmm. and if you actually come to grips with the reality that that might be part of your calling, it's heavier than you expect. Um, and if you're getting a sense of like ego yeah. elevation from it, it probably hasn't dawned on you what it actually might mean. And then you have to actually say, okay, I'm, I'm going to, I recognize that my path is leading me to this work and I will take on the job. Cause it's not being like, you get to pick flowers <laughs> and, and have a good time all day. It's like, no, you get to go into deep trauma and shit and craziness and be a space holder, have fun. <laughs> it's like, oh man, this is intense. Um, so, but the world needs it, man. The world needs it so much. Um, I think it's, yeah. if you feel called to it, you should, the world needs you. And, 
you know, I talk to people sometimes yeah. in class where I'm like, I know you don't want to hear this, but your your destiny is to help other people and be. You wouldn't be here right now in this class if you weren't gonna, if the, if you didn't have some sort of, some sort of the the weight to carry. Um, and a lot of people aren't ready for that. Yeah, I, I shouldn't say they're not ready for it, but they may not. It may be within their timeline of destiny, but they may not be at the point where they're ready to pick up the weight. And it may not even be in this life. Um, but I do believe that if they're being guided through the cosmic forces, that at some juncture, that's going to be something they're, they're going to need to encounter. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well said. Yeah, one, one last note on mantra um, that had come up was that through this idea of as above, so below, and as well, like the law of attraction, um, when we practice saying these words and resonating their meanings, we're potentially changing the dynamics of, it's so it's hard to put into words, but like reorganizing things such that we'll be more highly in alignment with our deepest spiritual path. So with the idea of a law of attraction is like what you think about, you bring about, if you're able to think about these hymns, these enlightened ideas being uh, portrayed in the hymns, you will bring about more of that enlightening experience into your life. And as I said, as above, so below, which mean, which as well means uh, as below, so above, you know, um, as we're kind of having these heightened experiences, we're bringing them back down into daily life. And it's no wonder that our lives become so much more peaceful as we practice this stuff and, and how things just seem to be magnetized to us and we don't really have to go chasing a bunch. Things start to find you you know, relationships starts to find you, teachers start to find you. That kind of brings up the idea of like when the student is ready, the teacher will appear. Um, because we're doing that, like that magnetizing, that uh, as above, so below and law of attraction technology, amplifying it in our life. This is also hard to say, but I'm, I think I'm doing a decent job. But then we kind of like f- attract, um, the, the teachings, the teachers, the learnings, the lessons for our highest spiritual path. It, it seems you know like we can actually change reality, right? Like we, yeah. we literally can like do, 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 tinker around and suddenly things change externally. Yeah. Um, yeah. yeah. No, I have That's that experience why. all the time. And so if we think about the word mantra, mana, man, or mana means mind, and tra oftentimes means like projection or like a filtered or focused kind of movement like this. Mm -hmm. And so what mantra can do for us is it gives our mind a projection. And as the law of attraction states, and as many uh, different philosophies state, reality seems to be a condition that has predetermining factors based off of the thought patterns that we have. Now, I'd say that 99% of people, even yogis, are living the majority of their life in an unconscious state and subconscious state to where their minds, subconscious and unconscious projections are creating the chaos and disorder that they experience in their life. And so as they begin to train their mind through both kundalini yoga and then obviously through the practice of mantra, 
you will start to kind of weed out the subconscious patterns that are creating all of the, uh, the intense troubles or the intense tremors of your life, yeah. right? So before people start doing yoga, they're like, my life is super chaotic. And then once they start, they're like, things seem to be kind of evening out. <laughs> and like, it's not as crazy or as bad as right. it used to be. And then you get to a level where you're being right. like, I'm creating shit. <laughs> like, this is totally nuts. I am, I'm literally yeah. taking an idea, meditating on it and bringing it into reality. So like there's octaves of, of like first, my uncontrolled mind is creating chaos. I'm starting to get control of my mind and things are, are, are leveling out. And now I'm actually taking control of my mind and consciously bringing things into reality. Now, the thing you want to be aware of is that last one is more or less a process of karma creation. So, so there, it can, it, this idea around manifestation and moving to that level of creating your own reality I'm, I, if that's what you feel called to do, I say more power to you, but there might, you might want to take into consideration that the, the idea of samsara and the idea that why we're here is to burn off our karma. You might be putting more on the charge card <laughs> as you're here. When you're like, I want that thing, I'm going to bring it into reality. It's more or less being like, you got it. And now you got to make sure that you play that out and you got to make sure that you actually, yeah follow through and every action has a karma. Every action is a karma that is going to have an effect behind it. And so you want, I, so at my stage in life, I am particularly careful about those, that manifestation process. I really try to yeah. be honest with myself about whether or not I am doing this from a place of soul calling or egoic centric. That's kind of the difference between like black magic and white magic is the black magic is egocentric and self-serving and maybe even to right. control others. You know, when I first learned this kind of stuff, the first thing I tried to do was get girls with it. I was like, you're going to love me <laughs> and you're going to love me. I'm going to get this girl to look at me. Or I'm going to manifest a brand new car. I was not, I did not tap into any of this in a, um, in a pause. It was a self-serving way, right? I'd say it was a self-serving mm -hmm. and material driven practice at first. And you, and I got all of those things and they cause, and they tend to cause more trouble than they're worth. Um, so maybe, mm -hmm. so I just want to bring, I want to highlight around, you might want to be aware about how you're using that space. And I found it was really important for me to gain clarity and neutrality. And it's kind of like soul confirmation before I moved into the manifestation portion. Cause otherwise, you know, one of the cool That's things so. is when you're, when you're chanting mantra, like God takes care of me, God takes care of me, God takes care of me that's going to bring in a space of reality that's taken care of. It's not, and it's not you saying, I want the red car or I want this, this attractive person. Mm. It's saying that whatever's coming to me is given to me by the grace of God. That's a pretty karma free. That's a pretty karma free projection in my opinion. Yeah. Um, yeah. So that's, I think where it gets to. Yeah. Yeah. Well said. And I definitely think that, you know, the best things in life, you know, are free and are things that are available to us almost all of the time. You know what I mean? Um, and we can go down that rabbit hole for a bit, but I know we're running low on time, but I, I have one more question that I would love to, to get out um, before we run out of time, which is, and this is a very kind of a deep, deep topic. Um, but one of the most important, I think, to, to share 
um, in this conversation, which is, you know, moving forward in a new paradigm of Kundalini yoga, but also a new paradigm of what it means to be a Sikh in America. Um, how can we, you know, with a solution in mind, um, and not just like, you know, like a, like a seeing the darkness of, of how things can have gone or, uh, can go is how do we bridge the practice of Kundalini yoga and Sikhism as a religion in a respectful and tasteful manner where those of us that want to practice or learn about Sikhism because we're being exposed to it through Kundalini yoga, um, how can we do that in a way that is respectful and tasteful towards people who have been born into this as a religion and um, see it in a slightly different way than, than we do? I think we've kind of talked about it already in the conversations mm-hmm. we've already had um, around. So one, Kundalini yoga is for everybody and anybody can come do it and benefit from it. It's an awesome practice that helps people heal themselves. And in the same way that doing Surya Namaskar comes from a Hindu tradition, chanting Waheguru comes from a Sikh tradition, both are healing practices that should be used by everyone, uh, hopefully respectfully. It actually So it actually makes me think of like Swami Vivekananda coming from India to the United States to teach Americans yoga. He never came here and was like, I want to teach you this, but don't practice it because that's cultural appropriation. And, and if you, if you take on the things I'm teaching you, you're a bad person, which seems to be the conversation now, right? Nowadays it's like, Hey, person from America, when you practice yoga, you're culturally appropriating, appropriating India, Indian culture. These practices were brought here by Indians with the purpose that they wanted to help the world evolve and grow. Right. So there's a certain amount of like, it's here because it was wanting to get passed on. So I think, um, and who needs and this, it more than us, right? The Americans. <laughs> right. Right. 100%. <laughs> um, so I think a conversation, and again, this is a very sensitive topic. Um, I think that there's a change that needs to happen. Hmm, how do I say this? We all need to grow together and that right now in our current dynamic, there seems to be a conversation around generational pain and a needing for everyone to grow together. So I respect where people are coming from when they want to talk about colonization and the misappropriation of these techniques by American people. Um, but I also think that they were gifted to us by sages and masters for that very purpose. And I am deeply sorry for your pain and I can hold space for your pain and I can, I can love you through it and love you with it and love and grow together with it. But I also am going to be unapologetic that these techniques are for everybody and that they should be used to grow. Um, everybody can benefit from them. The world will be a better place if you benefit from them. And that is from the secular perspective. That is somebody who wants to do do this without any kind of religious association. Now, I think it's important that if you decide that you want to start teaching Kundalini yoga and that you, for you, that expresses itself as like putting on a turban, you might want to know the context behind that. You might want to know where this is coming from. 
and that's a, that's a space within you that only you get to decide. No one can tell you that you're not Sikh enough or that you are. That's a, that's a, a space within yourself. So it's going to take integrity from each person who practices it. Um, you, you know what I mean? Like no one can tell you when you're ready yeah. to do that or not do that. That has to be a space that you decide within yourself. And hopefully people are coming from, from wisdom that they educate themselves around the culture it comes from. Um, and so, and then that's kind of tricky too, because, because in the teachings of Kundalini yoga, a majority of the Sikh stuff or, or things that you could associate as Sikh practices were given as a secular technology. So like the turban isn't put we don't put a turban on in Kundalini yoga because we're Sikhs. We put a turban on because it adjusts the loose cranium and, and it protects the Dasam Duar or the 10th chakra, or I'm sorry, the, the 10th gate or the 7th chakra, right? It helps facilitate an energetic connection to, to a certain chakra. So that's a technological reason of why you might wear a head covering, specifically a turban. So there, so if someone was like, I'm wearing this because it's part of the technology, I'd also give them a pass. Um, but they are, they're probably going to deal with some projections from people being like, how dare you? And that's going to be part of their own. Yeah balancing out so there's that there's the technology as well as the religious sense and i also think this comes into the conversation um around a person is going to a person's only going to get involved in siki if they are supposed to and i had you know if 10 people came into a room today and did kundalini yoga i should say if 100 people came into a room and did the kundalini yoga only one of them is going to be interested in siki Everybody else is just here to do yoga, to feel better, to elevate themselves and, yeah. and feel happy. Um, so I think it doesn't happen as much as people think it does. And then the one thing in Kundalini yoga that could probably help everybody out is like respect for their spiritual names. Um, spiritual names seem to be a big point of like injustice or like, like, how dare you? I get that a lot. Um, because it could be a very uh, innocently ignorant person receiving a, a sick name from the from that tradition and then uh, uh you know taking it on without having a deeper understanding or relationship to the context of it so right. you know um that can I, you want to be respectful about that i noticed 3ho has actually updated their page where they're like hey you should be aware of cultural appropriation and that should you choose to take on a spiritual name you do need to understand the significance of it the history of where it came from you need to be aware that this might be how people receive you using this name so they have taken strides to uh make the person aware who's requesting a spiritual name of the implications of doing so yeah. But then, like the spiritual names, dude, they're super powerful. Um, you know, it's thought that every everybody's spiritual name they get has like a hint or a secret in it about their destiny, and that if you meditate on your spiritual name, it gives you like this little like, oh, that's your secret power, or that's like your hidden hidden gift. Should you choose to use it, like Druv, Druv means stability, uh, uh, unwavering, um, steadiness, commitment. And it's, it's, it's secretly like my secret power and like that steadiness, the stability. And if it wasn't my secret power, it was what I needed to come into alignment with. So there's a certain amount of, there's a certain amount of like destinial qualities with the spiritual name that is really powerful should a person use it. So, 
Um, just knowledge, educate yourself. If it's not for you, you don't need to participate in it. If it is for you, I'd say introduce yourself to it slowly. Uh, don't jump in. So, you know, the other thing is it took me 10 years before I took Amrit. I identified as a Sikh for 10 years before I took Amrit. I have met people who are like, I just started Kundalini yoga like three months ago and I took Amrit at summer solstice. It's like, mm, you probably shouldn't. I can't say, you, I can't say you probably shouldn't do that. But it's like, I don't know if it's as meaningful to that person as they actually think it is. Um, so again, Same. that's going to be integrity of a person. It's going to be their own personal integrity. Yeah. Um, but I know people who are like, I took Amrit three months after starting my practice. And then three years later, I cut all my hair and did all these things. And it, to some degree mm -hmm. that says, I never really understood Amrit in the first place. It was just something I did right. because of whatever reason. It didn't mean anything to me when I did it. And it doesn't mean anything to me now. Um, so I think that something that people can do is give themselves time to simmer and sit on whatever it is that they're considering to do before they actually dive into it. Yeah. I know that was kind of hodgepodge, but <laughs> no, that was great. That was great. You know, and I think really the silver lining and in, in all that is, you know, have a deep respect for a spiritual name, have a deep respect for Amrit, have a deep respect for the lineage well, thank you so much, brother. That was an amazing chat. We we hit on so many good points, and uh, I hope you know the listeners learned something. Definitely, I want to make a conversation out of this. And uh, if you guys you know want to comment below, comment on the post, you know we create uh, a little dialogue around this very nuanced topic. Um, but again, you know I. I'm happy that we were able to have this conversation. I think it was productive and helped shed a lot of insight um, into what Kundalini Yoga is, what its relationship to Sikhism is, and what Sikhism generally is. So once again, just thank you so much. Brother. Yeah, yeah, my pleasure. Um, I'm always happy to to talk about all these all these topics. So thanks for having me on. Um, and if people do comment, I'm pretty active and I'll try to answer and respond to any questions specifically if you have any. So please do comment and let me know. Sign up. Yeah, absolutely, brother. Um, just to finish it real quick, how do people connect with you online? Um, yeah. Is there any website, social media handles, that type of thing? So I'm on Instagram. You can find me under Obi-Wan Kalsa, as in like Obi-Wan Kenobi. Um, and I post on there all my ongoing classes and general thoughts and just what's going on in life. So if you want to connect me with me on there, Obi-Wan Kalsa, um, and I'm always happy to make new friends. So add me on there. Awesome. Will do. All right. Well, thank you guys for listening. Thank you once again, Drew, for being here today and we'll see you on the next episode. Satnam, brother. Satnam, Ji. Thanks.